It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Today is Tuesday, June 9th, 2020. On this day in 1930, Chicago Tribune reporter Jake Lingle was murdered on the way to a horse race. The hit was carried out in broad daylight in the midst of a crowd, and yet the person behind the 90-year-old killing remains a mystery to this day. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Today we're covering the death of Alfred Jake Lingle, a prolific reporter for the Chicago Tribune who made a living covering salacious crime stories. Let's go back to around 1 o'clock on June 9, 1930, as Lingle went to catch a train. Jake Lingle had a full day ahead of him. As his wife Helen packed for a trip to their summer home, he hit the streets. His job depended on him being out and about constantly. He was not a traditional reporter, but what was referred to as a leg man. The Tribune paid him $65 a week to go out into Chicago and gather whatever stories he could, which he'd call back into the office to be written up. His name rarely appeared in a byline, but unlike his colleagues, stuck in the stuffy newsroom, he had his finger on the pulse of the ever-changing city of Chicago. It was a job that Lingle had been doing for 18 years, and one he considered himself to be very good at. Today, however, after meeting with his editor and a few select contacts, he planned to partake in one of his favorite pastimes. Before leaving for their summer home by Lake Michigan, Jake planned on doing a little light gambling. That afternoon, he exited the Sherman House Hotel and made his way briskly to Randolph Street Terminal, four blocks away. As he headed down the street, Lingle started to suspect that he was being followed. The previous day, as he conversed with attorney Louis B. Piquette on Randolph Street, he'd become distracted by a pair of men watching them from a blue sedan. Not finishing his sentence, he bid the lawyer goodbye and ducked into a nearby store. And now he felt a similar sensation of being watched. Today, the block was packed, and he couldn't pick out any suspicious characters around him in the throng. He stopped briefly outside the station to buy the racing edition of that day's paper, which he opened and read as he entered the tunnel. His attention focused on the paper. He didn't see his pursuer elbowing his way through the crowd behind him, a tall, blonde man with gray silk gloves. The stranger stepped up behind Lingle and produced a 38 snub-nosed revolver from his pocket. Without saying a word, he fired a shot at point-blank range behind Lingle's ear. 
The bullet passed through Lingle's skull, and he fell face first onto the ground. As the crowd around him erupted into chaos, the shooter paused over the body. He dropped the firearm beside it and walked nonchalantly away. Police found the crime scene surrounded by curious onlookers. Lingle's straw boater hat lay in front of his head, and the newspaper was crushed beneath his prone form. The silk gloves worn by the shooter were found nearby, but like the firearm, did not help the police identify the assassin. The murder shocked and horrified the city of Chicago. Though it was no stranger to sudden bouts of gang violence, a murder in broad daylight was almost unheard of. And what's more, the murder of a reporter. The Chicago newspaper industry, insisting that Lingle was murdered for knowing too much about Al Capone's Chicago outfit, posted a reward of $55,000 for information that could lead to an arrest, more than $820,000 today. Police rounded up over 664 potential suspects in the immediate aftermath, though none of them were charged. Lingle's June 12th funeral was one of the most extravagant the city had ever seen. A veritable parade of police officers, firefighters, and brass bands. It even had a military escort. The intent of the funeral was clear, to establish that the city of Chicago would not forget any martyrs to the cause of fighting crime. Only Alfred Jake Lingle was no martyr. As local newspapers were writing celebratory articles on Jake's legacy, a St. Louis reporter named Harry Brundage was growing suspicious. There was something about Lingle's story that didn't seem to add up. First of all, Lingle's lifestyle was far too extravagant for that of a $65 a week leg man. Lingle reported an annual gross income of $60,000, over 17 times his salary for the Tribune. His colleagues claimed he had very recently become financially independent due to a large inheritance. One claimed that he followed newspaper work not because it paid him what he was worth to do it, but because he loved it. Brundage was unconvinced, and looking deeper still into Lingle's finances, soon turned up a different story. It turns out the inheritance that supposedly made Lingle so wealthy was only $1,550. Lingle held almost as much money, around $1,400, in his pockets at the time of his death. His financial interests were, it seemed, far more diverse than initially believed. Subsequently, Brundage turned up a six-figure stock market account that Lingle co-owned with police commissioner William Russell, establishing a close link between the two men, a link that turned out to be mutually beneficial. We'll explore the depths of Lingle's corruption after this. Now, back to the story. On June 9, 1930, 38-year-old reporter Jake Lingle was shot in the back of the head while entering a Chicago train tunnel. The assassin fled the scene, leaving behind the weapon, a pair of gray silk gloves, and a crowd of horrified witnesses. 
Lingle was dubbed a martyr by the press, a victim of Chicago gangland violence, but that picture cracked and faded the more scrutiny it received. St. Louis-based reporter Harry Brundage started digging through Lingle's personal finances and discovered a number of unsavory details. Lingle had received large donations from all sorts of people, aldermen, city officials, and even a number of gangsters. It seemed that Lingle and police commissioner William Russell were the men gangsters bribed for police protection in the city of Chicago. Lingle himself accumulated $85,000 in various bribes, some of which even came from policemen paying him to talk them up to the commissioner and earn them a promotion. Lingle's friends included Al Capone, who he had covered generously in the past. He once referred to Capone as a citizen with an unblemished record, hounded from his home by the very policemen whose salaries are paid, at least in part, from the victim's pocket. Capone, often delighted with his work, had given him a diamond-studded belt buckle as a gift. Just before Brundage's story broke on July 18th, William Russell resigned as police commissioner. But Brundage's story only cracked the motive in Lingle's death. Police still had to determine the shooter. In January of 1931, police arrested hitman Leo Vincent Brothers for murder. Though the murder was in broad daylight, witness testimony was divided on his guilt. Seven said he was the shooter, and another seven said he definitely was not. In spite of the conflicting testimony, Leo Brothers was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison, the minimum sentence for murder. He wound up serving eight. The specific reason for Lingle's murder remains a mystery. If Brothers was the shooter, he remained completely silent about who ordered the slaying. Since his release, many theories have been proposed about why this corrupt reporter had to die. Some say he owed Al Capone a significant amount of money or had gotten on the wrong end of his famously volatile temper. With the number of connections Lingle had throughout the city, it's difficult to say for sure who wanted him dead. He was a compulsive gambler, with his hands deep in the pockets of some of Chicago's most influential figures. It seemed that at some point in his 18-year career, he had gambled away his life without even realizing it. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. For stories like this one, be sure to listen to the ParCast original, Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Robert Teamstra with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 